Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 9th, 2014. Now, my deepest apologies, uh, this is going to be the last episode of this week. I am not going to be in studio tomorrow. I have a church function that I need to be attending. This will happen from time to time, especially in the month of October, as long as I continue to be a pastor. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what's being said actually squares with God's Word. Now, part of discernment, part of discernment, we've been, you know, one of the things I've been doing this week, we've been kind of taking a closer look at some of the finer nuances of discernment. Part of discernment is understanding that often, often you have a Christian brother who is the one who is putting something out or who has done something that uh, doesn't square with God's word. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not your Christian brother. It means that they're an error regarding a particular portion of what God's word teaches. And so in a situation like that, it requires you to distinguish, um, am I dealing with somebody who is a heretic or am I dealing with somebody who is heterodox? And heterodox means you know, kind of a heretic is somebody who is definitely not a Christian brother. Heterodox means you got a Christian brother who's got beliefs that are, yeah, they just, you know, it's a weird mixed bag. In, in Lutheran circles, and I'm a confessional Lutheran, we talk about what we call the felicitous inconsistency. And the idea behind it is, is that, you know, listen, you know, you do not have to be a confessional Lutheran to be a Christian. I mean, that's just straight up the, the truth. I mean, there are Christians who are Baptists, who are non-denominational, who are Presbyterian. And this is going to be controversial. There are even uh, people who are Christians who are Roman Catholic. And so the idea is, is that we being sinners, um, we are prone to all kinds of sin and unbelief. And so the idea is our sinful nature does not want to abide by God's law morally and also struggles with believing what God has revealed in his word doctrinally. And so the idea is, is you're not saved by, you know, whether or not you can click off the right boxes, you know, on an orthodox scorecard. However, that being said, it's important to understand that there are certain non-negotiable doctrines that would put you outside of the Christian faith. 
For instance, if you have the wrong Jesus, Mormons claim to be Christians, and they do not believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, a second person of the Holy Trinity. Instead, uh, Jesus is uh, one of the firstborn sons of Elohim, who was once a man who became a god. Well, <clears throat> that's a false god and a false Jesus, even though they use the word Jesus and God and Elohim, which are biblical words. What they mean by that is different. And so they're guilty of idolatry. They worship a, a different god. That means they're not Christians. Same applies to the gospel. The anathema of Galatians chapter 1 falls on those who deny that we are saved completely by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Instead, you know, those who, like the Judaizers, say, you can't be saved unless you do X, Y, or Z, insert, you know, either the Mosaic Law or, uh, you know, some man-made Christ, you know, some man-made Christianist, Christian-ish law. Well, that's a different gospel, and so that puts you outside of the Christian faith. So the idea is is that we ha- we must make the distinction between heretics and those who are heterodox, you know, erring brothers versus those who are truly outside of the Christian faith. This is an important distinction to keep in mind when we do discernment. Now, two of the segments we're going to be talking about today are going to require us to be very careful. We're going to have to be very careful and uh, what I mean by that is it's, it, we've got to walk kind of a tightrope, and we have to pay attention to what's being said, what isn't said. And uh, in one particular segment, we're going to have to do a little bit more research and dig a little bit deeper because we're dealing with a man who has built a network that is heterodox. Its, its praxis is uh, contrary to Scripture. But the man who's put this network together, when you listen to him, I mean, it's clear that his that in many respects his theology is right, but the problem is is that his goals are actually going to be undermined in the long term by the false practices that he wants to introduce. I know that seems kind of cryptic, but <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to kind of set this up so we kind of know where we're going. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're first going to begin with an emergent church update, and we're, that's where Rob Bell falls into. Uh, he's part of the emergent church. And no, I do not consider Rob Bell to be a brother in Christ, not by any stretch of the imagination. This is a man who has attacked the cardinal uh, non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith, and he's made a career of doing that. And uh, yet he's put forward as some kind of an evangelical author and speaker, uh, yet everything he does, <clears throat> oh, it really contradicts that. Well, it's come to light that he's got a new book coming out at the end of the month. The name of it is The Zimzum of Love, The Zimzum of Love. And we're going to take just a brief look at the description of this and kind of show you how even from the description, you can tell you're not dealing with a book that's teaching sound biblical doctrine, but is teaching something different. We'll switch gears, we'll switch gears, and uh, we've got a Kong He update. Now, Kong He has been in the news uh, due to the fact that, uh, well, he's under investigation regarding mismanagement of church funds in funding his wife's secular crossover career, and we're going to listen to him talking about uh, the his ideas behind planting uh, his church there in Singapore and the Seven Mountains mandate. Now, he calls them Seven Pillars in this particular uh, sermon. But we're not going to listen to the whole thing. There's, I want to, I want you to kind of hear his thinking on things and pay attention to the fact that his that he, well he's mishandling God's word. Yes, 
But his ideas are not found in Scripture. They're found somewhere else regarding his methodology and the things he thinks the church should be addressing. And so he's got a different stream of truth rather than the Bible when it comes to the methodology and overarching philosophy behind his church. Worth listening to if you, if you ask me. Then what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears. We're going to bring you up to speed on kind of a brewing controversy down in Australia um, and this is going to require us to pay close attention to what's being said and what isn't being said. This one's going to this one's going to take a little bit of discernment because there are allegations uh, related to uh, Frank Houston, who uh, is the father of Brian Houston of Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia, and and this has to do with how the discipline was handled when it came to light that Frank Houston was a serial pedophile. And uh, what did, you know, how was he disciplined and what happened in that? Now, there's allegations that are being put forward and they're being put forward in a formal manner uh, in front of a royal commission out there in Australia. And what we're going to be listening for is not necessarily, uh, you know, the scandal of the situation, because I think in one sense, um, you know, Brian Houston has been very forthright in talking about you know his father's sin um, and you know how it's impacted him. It's not like he's been hiding it in, you know somewhere else. But the question is, is that how does the church handle sin? And this kind of gives you an idea of whether or not they have a firm grasp on the gospel or not. Because ultimately, with any with any organization where human beings, sinful human beings, are involved, and this does include the church, you're going to have People who will have huge moral failings uh, fall into all kinds of different sins, and so you, you know pastors are, are tempted in a thousand and one different ways, and different pastors are going to fall in different ways. And the question is, how then is the church to address these things? And I think it's fascinating because as you listen to these news stories, there's a, there's kind of a subtext that's that's appearing in here that shows us something about how celebrity pastors are treated because Frank Houston, uh, when he was still alive and preaching, he was something of a celebrity within the Assemblies of God denomination down in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, and so it's kind of fascinating, worth passing the information on to you. It's a story worth watching, but I'm not sure where it's going to end up because I don't know what at the end is going to be produced by the Royal Commission regarding this investigation into child sexual abuse in the Pentecostal movement. So, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. And then we'll switch gears one last time. We'll be a little bit long on our first hour today. I want to take a look at uh, the 5-2 network. And uh, in particular, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bill Wolsey. And uh, we're going to listen to uh, maybe one or two videos from the 5-2 network. And this is an else put this together. This is a kind of a network of sacramental uh, Lutheran types who are embracing a seeker-driven, con- a different ecclesiology than the biblical ecclesiology. And so we're going to be listening to Bill Walsey talk about sacramental entrepreneurs. Now, in in discussing this, I think it's important to address the fact that Bill Walsey is a man who I would not consider a heretic. And I'll I'll give you reason why he's not a heretic because you know I've listened carefully to several of his sermons and have a pretty firm grasp on where his theology is. 
The problem is, is that the ecclesiology he's putting forward in this 5-2 network is not biblical, and in a sense, he's creating a, um, a separate entity from the Missouri Synod, uh, an ecclesiastical network entity, very similar to what Bill Hybels and Rick Warren did. And uh, the, when you pay attention to the details of what it is that they're trying to do and, and who they're trying to recruit and what their job is, you, you begin to see that there's a real problem here. So we're dealing with true heterodoxy, but this heterodoxy will ha- ultimately have an impact on the gospel, and I think a negative one, uh, because there's s- something kind of tacitly missing uh, in the analysis of um, Bill Woolsey and the 5-2 Network. So I wanted to take a look at that, listen to him demonstrate that we're not dealing with somebody who's a rank heretic. I mean, this is a guy who seems to have a pretty good grasp on law and gospel and the means of grace, but the ecclesiology that he's embracing as to, in order to solve the so-called you know uh, decline in membership that so that uh, you know, Lutheran churches and you know and the sort are experiencing. Yeah, actually, this is going to, in the long run, not solve the problem. It's going to exacerbate it, in fact, make it worse, and could and most likely result in the gospel being heard less and less and less by those who are so adamant in embracing this this way of doing church. So that's what we're going to do in hour number one. Hour number two, we're going to head down to Daystar Church in Atlanta, and we're going to listen to a short sermon uh, that's uh, all about dreaming with God. Um, Yeah, did you know that God wants you to dream with him? Yeah. I had no idea either, but you know, I know some of you are sitting there going, no, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I had no clue either, but we're going to listen to this sermon from uh, Chris Teagreen, and uh, yeah, it's uh, rather fascinating. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have got a lot of ground to cover, and since we're going to start off with an emergent church update, and that's where Rob Bell has come to rest, if you would, um, that requires me to do this. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. Now you'll notice in the French horn there, that is actually Rob Bell. Uh, this is their homage, their homage to uh, Strauss's also Sprach Zarathustra, and uh, you'll notice that they've been set free from the limiting definitions of modernist notes, and they're just being led by the Spirit. Ah, yes, it's a banquet for the ears. crack up every time I hear that. Okay, so uh, Rob Bell's new book is coming out at the end of the month, and it's named The Zimzum of Love. Now, if you have never read the Kabbalah, (laughs) 
which is the book that deals with Jewish mysticism. Kind of, you know, I think Madonna, you know, you know, she was a Kabbalahist for a while. I don't know if she still is. I, you know, she kind of flits around in her spirituality. But anyway, um, yeah, Zimzum is not a word that is attributed to biblical doctrine, biblical theology. And it's important for you to know that. In fact, um, <clears throat> here's, a, um, here's an article talking about the Hebrew word Zimzum. Yeah, and um, th- this is a direct quote <laughs> from uh, the uh, <clears throat> from the Kabbalah. Here we go. Prior to creation, there was only the infinite or the Ein Sof, filling all existence. When it arose in God's will to create worlds and emanate the emanated, He contracted that, and that's the word zimzum. You know, zimzum means to contract. He zimzumed himself. In the point at the center, at the very center of his light, he restricted that light, distancing it to the sides surrounding the central point so that there remained a void, a hollow, empty space away from the central point. After this zimzum, this contraction, he drew down from from the or ein sof, a single straight line of light from his light surrounding the void from above to below into the void, and it chained down, descending into that void. In the space of that void, he emanated, created, formed, and made all the worlds. Yeah. Now, if that sounds like a um, science fiction type of writing, well, that's exactly what that is. That's not actual biblical theology. So a zimzum, if you would, is uh, is a contracting. So right off the bat, we've got a problem. We've got a big problem because if you know your Kabbalah, or at least know of it, uh, you know then we're not dealing with biblical doctrine, biblical theology. So the name of the book is The Zimzum of Love, A New Way of Understanding Marriage. A new way, a, a new way, wow. I mean, can you imagine, all of human history, I mean, has been doing it wrong until now. If you would. And thankfully, God has sent us the prophet Rob Bell to show us a new way of doing marriage. Anyway, so this is from the book's description, and this is at Amazon.com. Here's here's what it says. As he, that would be Rob Bell, revolutionized traditional teaching on hell in the phenomenal New York Times bestseller, Love Wins. See, you know, actually, he didn't revolutionize the traditional teaching on hell because the traditional... Biblical teaching on hell can't be revolutionized. The faith has been once for all delivered to the saints, straight up. So the the biblical teaching on hell remains. It hasn't changed. Um, Maybe uh, he's led a revolution and a revolt within Christendom against what God has revealed in his word against hell. But Rob Bell hasn't actually revolutionized the traditional teaching on hell. Anyway, so Rob Bell now transforms how we understand and practice marriage in the Zimzum of Love, co-written with his wife, Kristen. Despite the divorce statistics, people are still committing to each other, instinctively believing and hoping that there is a sacred union that will last forever. Yet, when these couples encounter problems, they often lack the resources to keep them connected to this greater mystery surrounding marriage. The description reads, we continue, Rob and Kristen Bell introduce a startling new way of looking at marriage, the Zimzum of love. Zimzum is a Hebrew term where God, in order to have a relationship with the world, contracts, creating space for the creation to exist. 
<clears throat> yeah, notice that the way this is written, it's a Hebrew word. So the unsuspecting uh, person who doesn't know their Bible, which would probably be about 90% of the evangelical world at this point, uh, they really don't know their Bible. And the question is, how are they going to learn it? They're not reading it. They're not being taught it correctly. Uh, they're only getting, you know, six or seven verses out of context on any given Sunday. Uh, strip mind for life principles to make their lives better. How are they supposed to know that this isn't in the Bible? The way this is written, oh, this zimzum is a Hebrew word. <laughs> well, that means it comes from the Bible, right? Wrong. It doesn't, actually. So it's a Hebrew term where God, in order to have a relationship with the world, contracts creating space for the creation to exist. In marriage, zimzum this is the fun part. Zimzum is the dynamic energy field between two partners in which each person contracts to allow the other to flourish. Mastering this energy field, this gives this give and take of energy is the secret to what makes marriage flourish. And you just go, what? What? So in order for my marriage to flourish, I need to learn how to master a energy field where I'm supposed to contract. <laughs> I don't even know what any of this means. So, I mean, right off the bat, do you think we're going to hear anything biblically sound or solid regarding what scripture actually teaches regarding marriage? No, not at all. We're going to get Kabbalahist theology um, and, you know, basically Eastern mysticism, you know, masquerading as some kind of a Jewish religion uh, and their wisdom supposedly how to improve our marriage. Huh. So this is a competing message to what the Bible teaches regarding marriage. So there you go. I mean, there you, the zimzum of love, you know, at, it's not biblical. It's not Christian. Um, but, uh, you know, so many people out there, you know. You know, they were they grew up on these Numa videos, so they think that you know, hey, if it's Rob Bell book, you know, he was he started off at Zondervan, so he's got to be a Christian author. No, this guy's a total. He's either a pantheist or a panentheist, but he he ain't he ain't a biblical solid Christian. In fact, over and again, he spends his time deconstructing, attacking, and casting doubt on what the Bible actually says that's not somebody who's a christian brother that's somebody who's a wolf and uh you know the more people you warn about rob bell and have them open up their bibles uh, so that they're not duped you know that's going to be the better for them okay moving along don't want no loving don't want no kissing don't want no gal to call me honey my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that. Yeah, that's right. Time for money grubbing televangelist update. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Elder Nero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shackles, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Get me a suit that's made out of oof and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can in vehicle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. 
All right, that's our money-grubbing televangelist update. And yes, money-grubbing televangelists come all the way even from Singapore, from City Harvest Church. Now, what we're going to be listening to is Kong Hee basically describing, if you would, um, what has come to be known as the Seven Mountains. Now, this is an important thing. Now, what we're going to be listening to is, number one, a Bible twist. This is definitely a Bible twist. But we're also going to get a little bit of history, if you would, of uh, of City Harvest Church and the idea and overarching methodological philosophy behind it. The problem is, is that the overarching methodological philosophy behind it is not biblical. No. In fact, let me let me ask you this. Where in the Bible do we get the uh, the office of the vision casting leader? Answer, that is not a biblical office. Correct. So the problem here is is that even if Kong He correctly handled God's word, the ecclesiology that he's putting forward doesn't square with Scripture and is based upon twisting Scripture. And ultimately, this has a a major impact because Christ has instituted the teaching office, the office of the pastor, as the as of what the, the church is supposed to, in a sense, kind of center around, and the job of the pastor is to feed and care for Christ's sheep. Uh, but they've changed everything without any biblical warrant and without any, well, let's just put it this way, go you know go ahead authority given to them by Christ to change how Christ's church is organized and this is a problem this is a huge problem which ultimately is going to impact the gospel itself now i said if kong even if kong he did correctly teach the scriptures and he doesn't what this ecclesiology is definitely will impact the gospel and that's i think this is one of the reasons why we've seen uh, you know over the course of fighting for the faith here if you were to go into the ancient archives of Fighting for the Faith and listen to like year one um, in the sermon reviews that we did in year one, one of the things that was a frequent thing that showed up in the sermons in year one uh, from even the seeker-driven churches was what we called the Gospel Nugget. And the Gospel Nugget is, is oh, it, it was almost like this obligatory, yeah, I still remember that Gospel thing. But then over the years... The gospel nuggets disappeared, and we hear less and less and less and less about Jesus and more and more and more about self. Part of this is driven by the fact that the these men who call themselves pastors are not, in, in any sense of the word, pastors, because they're not paying attention to what Scripture commands regarding the qualifications for the biblical pastoral office. They are not paying attention to the duties of that office, nor are they dispensing those duties. They're, they're, they've become CEOs. They've become vision-casting leaders, but they're not, in the truest sense of the word, pastors, and this is a problem. But here's Kong, he kind of giving internal messaging regarding how City Harvest Church got started, the overarching philosophy, and you'll notice that this philosophy does not come from God's word. Instead, is based on a twisting of God's word. Here we go. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, God needed a man to save Israel from the Philistine. So he asked the prophet Samuel to look for Saul. So 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 16, I'm going to pick up the story from here. 1 Samuel 9 and verse 16. It says, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. 
For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come up to me. Now you got to understand this. The anointing is for an assignment to make you a commander. What? The anointing is for an assignment to make me a commander. Really? You see, yeah, twisting of God's word here. Everybody say, I'm appointed and anointed. No, you're not. So the anointing of God... Yeah, 1 Samuel 19 doesn't teach this. It's not for your private enjoyment. It's not just for you to enjoy the goosebumps upon the goosebumps during your daily devotional time. You enjoy goosebumps during daily devotions. It's a weird thing to try to enjoy. But it's to make you a leader for God in the marketplace. To solve problems... A leader for God in the marketplace? What? Problems. And to deal with the darkness out there in the world. So one chapter later, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 5, Samuel said to Saul, After that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. Now a garrison is a stronghold. So the Philistines have built strongholds around the mountain of God so that people could not go up and enjoy His glory. Now mountains and hills speak to us of places of influence and authority. <laughs> no, mountains and hills actually speaks to us of geography. <sighs> so you see what he's doing. He's allegorizing the mountains and hills in this text. And this is a major problem. Psalms 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So make no mistake about it. Everything in the universe belongs to God. But Satan has built demonic strongholds around places of influence and authority at the foot of the hill so that people could not go up to God's mountain. About 10 years ago, the Lord showed me the seven pillars of influence in every society. Uh, the, the, the Lord showed you the seven pillars of influence in society? Where did He show this to you? At the same time, there was an American man in New York City by the name of Lance Wilnow. And he taught about the seven mountains. Lance Wilnow of the New Apostolic Reformation? So I was teaching seven pillars. He was talking about seven mountains. I've never heard of him. And he's never heard of me. Our path never crossed. And then one day, Peter Wagner came to Singapore. And See Peter Wagner of the New Apostolic Reformation. Man of his son and I and said, Kong you got to know this. The seven pillars you're teaching and the seven mountains in the U.S., they are exactly one and the same. You guys are speaking the revelation that God is releasing in this generation. The, 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 the what? The revelation that God is releasing in this generation? So God released a new revelation regarding seven mountains? Really? When God told the Israelites... To go in to possess the promised land. He told them, you are going to overcome seven nations greater than you. And they have giants on the inside. Well, yeah, the nations were actually real peoples in the promised land. And those seven nations, they all tally with the seven pillars. For example, the Japanese... This is just crazy. I mean, th that he would actually have the audacity to take something from the Old Testament. Oh, the seven nations. <gasps> oh, 
that, re- that is in regard to the seven pillars, the new revelation that God is giving in the world. What? And so this is what's ticking behind the methodology of Kong He. Jebusites. Do you know the word Jebusite means legalism? And what is a stronghold of religion? Well, legalism. And then you have the next one. You have what? Parasites. And the word means breakup. And that corresponds to family. And you find families today, marriages, having breakups, separation. So what he's trying to do is take the names of the different nations and now superimpose them over this new revelation that God gave Lance Wall now, C. Peter Wagner, and Kong He regarding these seven mountains slash pillars. See, yeah, see the religion pillar mountain. Yeah, that re, that's actually a parallel to the Jebusites, and then the family pillar mountain. No, that deals with the parasites, divorces, and it happens even in church. It happens even among Christians because Satan has established a stronghold in the pillar of family. And then you have the Canaanites, and they were the merchants and the traders. And they speak of business. They come against the realm of business. And a stronghold of business is greed. So you, you Christians, you need, to, you, you need to take the business marketplace against the Canaanites, you know? And then you have the Amorites. Amorites means pride. And they relate to the pillar of education. Ah, the pride, the pillar of education. Because the Bible says knowledge pops up. And isn't it? Yeah, so just stay stupid. It's true. Very often, higher education can make a person very proud. And then you have the Gergeshites, and that relates to government. And you have Hivites, and the Hivites are devoted to pleasure. And it relates to the mountain of arts and entertainment. And what is the stronghold of arts and entertainment? The pleasure for all things immoral. And then you have the Hittites. And that relates to the media. So so the Hittites, they, they were definitely into you know, the media. They were the first people to, you know, to post videos on YouTube and stuff. Um, wow. So, I mean, that's just a, a taste of this. If you really wanted to see the whole thing, you can at uh, Kong He Ministries' uh, YouTube channel. Um, all of the uh, sermons regarding the seven mountains are up there, but this is based upon a complete Bible twist. And so he basically believes, and he reveals this in other videos, that City Harvest Church is called to take these seven mountains and these seven pillars, and uh, and you know, and they're they're doing church a completely different way because of this new revelation uh, regarding these the seven mountain mandates, and the new revelation is claimed to be a direct revelation from God, and so. The problem is, is that now he's organized his church not biblically according to what God's word reveals. Instead, his church is completely organized along the lines of achieving the objectives of these seven mountains or seven pillars and the mandate that goes along with that with the understanding that somehow this is a new, fresh revelation from God regarding where the church is supposed to go. And the problem, again, is is that the, the mission of the church doesn't change. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the idea is, is that the church has the church's mandate doesn't change. 
The church's mandate stays the same from the time of Christ's ascension until the time of Christ's return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And uh, and that also means that the ecclesiastical structure that is set in place in Scripture is to be the thing that is used in Christ's church, because it's not ours. Christ is the Lord of the church, not me, not you, not Kong He, not anybody, except for Jesus. And so the ecclesiastical model that Christ has put into place is to stay in effect until Jesus' return. And if you deviate from this, whether or not you know you have a well-meaning heart and a zeal for evangelism and think you've come up with a more efficient way of making disciples, in the end, because you're deviating from what Christ has said and to act like you know better than Jesus how to grow his church, you know, in the end, you're going to end up sacrificing the gospel. We'll talk a little bit more about that on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the 5-2 network and then also give you kind of a, get you up to speed on what the big story is down in Australia regarding Brian Houston and his late father, Frank Houston. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's. Broadcasting our pirate signal. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, 
My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seed offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if their ecclesiology doesn't actually match what Scripture says. It's actually important. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring... Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll find our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and that is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along. I do not have update music for this, but those of you who uh, you know follow what's happening in the uh, the world of Lutheranism, this is a little bit more of a Lutheran uh, angle here that we're going to be covering, but it actually is kind of interesting because as um, evangelicalism has kind of gotten to the logical conclusion of the uh, seeker-driven uh, church growth methodologies and ideas and uh, has you know, ended up in the bankrupt in the bankrupt position that it's in that we cover here over and over again here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, there's kind of this fascinating things that that happens within Lutheranism, especially within uh, the Missouri Synod. Now, I'm no longer Missouri Synod, so I, I got to make this clear that at this point, I'm, I'm just giving my opinions. <laughs> so my opinions don't really reflect at this point any particular uh, group because technically I'm outside of the LCMS now. So um, the idea is is that uh, one of the things I've noticed in the LCMS is that. Uh, the LCMS has this really bad habit of like picking up on evangelical ideas 10 to 15 years after the fad has passed in evangelicalism. And unfortunately, I think this is what's going on with Bill Wolsey and the 5-2 network. Now, 
in order to kind of set this up, you know, we've been talking about you got to be careful to, to distinguish between heresy and heterodoxy. Um, I want to play for you to begin with um, a, a portion of a sermon that I listened to from Bill Wolsey, who is the head of um, of the Five Two Network, so that you can hear that the, 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 this is a, a man who pastorally understands the gospel, understands law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and communicates it rather well. And you know, and so I want to make sure that the the critique and the observations that I'm going to offer in just a minute don't take away from this fact. I think this is an important thing that we need to keep in mind as we look at what's going on with Bill Walsey, and that is is that he's not like a Rob Bell heretic. No, he's not like that at all. But the problem is is that he is in error regarding his ecclesiology, and I'll explain that in a minute. But here's Bill Walsey from a sermon entitled Imperfect People, The Hard Path. Imperfect People, The Hard Path. And he was preaching on the book of Esther. And uh, and uh, listen to this segment from this sermon so you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. Prince, when you're redeemed, when you personally are redeemed, when you are caught in a lie... But your parents forgive that and still trust you. When you slept in your co-worker's bed, but now have been welcomed back into your marriage bed. When you get fired from one job only to be hired for a better job, that's cool. When you realize that you have treated your wife with disdain for decades and she only treats you with love and respect. When you come to grips that you used to treat your kids like you hated them, but now in your old age, they treat you with affection and care. When you finally grasp just how extreme God's demands for perfection are, how intensely he abhors your sin, how intensely that sin permeates every cell of your body, you by yourself are anathema to God. You, you are forever anti-God's desires for you. That's your true norm. You falsely believe that you are subject to no one. You may deny that right now, but the way you act and the way you behave in secret and inside yourself says just the opposite. When you openly admit that is your core being, that you are who you are and there's no longer any need to pretend that you treat Jesus more like a comic con character than the real guardian of the galaxy. When you finally come to grips with your brokenness and imperfection, yet you also come to grips with how much Jesus loves you, with what he has done for you, how he has given everything he had for you. How he has taken your imperfection and traded it for his perfection. How you are literally perfect in the sight of God. Through your faith in Jesus, through your baptism, through the supper you took part in. That you as the people of God will never lose the blue and white garment, the gold crown on your head, and the nice purple fancy robe. It is yours, Mordecai. You are the Mordecai. You have been elevated to that position. And it can- All right. So you kind of get the idea. And, and at this point, you know, you can quibble about, you know, how he's maybe like over applying the Mordecai analogy. 
but in 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 the gist of what he's doing i mean that was law gospel sin grace repentance forgiveness of sins dealing with even the doctrine of original sin i would say bill wolsey doesn't deny the doctrine of original sin he understands the difference between law and gospel communicates it properly and and proclaims um the assurance of salvation through the objective means of grace so this is all something that is to be commended the issue is is that there is a major error in his theology and in order to detect that, we're going to have to listen to a couple of videos from Bill Walsey from the 5-2 Network, where, uh, and this is from their website, and he's going to be talking about what he calls um, sacramental entrepreneurs. And the things he says in here are troubling, very troubling. And, uh, you know, it, it, I don't understand how on the one hand you can affirm what Scripture says regarding the gospel, regarding the forgiveness of sins, and things like that, and at the same time deny what Scripture teaches regarding the pastoral office. So without any further ado, here is a dose of O2 from the 5-2 Network from July of this year. Here we go. Welcome to this week's Dose of O2 from 5-2, a conversation designed especially for sacramental entrepreneurs. Sometimes we need someone to light a fire under us. Yeah, okay, what is a sacramental entrepreneur? I know what sacramental is, and I know what an entrepreneur is. Okay, my question immediately is, well, why not sacramental um, farmers? Why not sacramental, um, you know, uh, Walmart employees? How about sacramental motocross uh, racers? You, you see what I'm saying? You can't just take the word sacramental and stick it onto, you know, stick it onto something else that doesn't make any sense. Entrepreneur has to do with business. And every fire needs a little oxygen. Feel free to share this with your friends. When it comes to cars, I'm stupid crazy. I obsess over them. So this is Bill Wolsey. Especially when I get in, the speedometer reads 180 plus, because when I'm running out to the grocery store, God knows I need to get there and back fast. So when I look at cars, I can't help but want to know what's under the hood. What makes the baby haul? I want the numbers, valves, horsepower, turbos, especially if they're twins, and volume. Well, in this issue of 5.2, I want to lay out what's under our hood. What makes 5.2 go? You could say it's the engine that propels and multiplies. I like to say it's the fuel for the movement. Fuel for the movement. Now, this is where it gets troubling. My concern at this point is that the 5-2 network is basically becoming a de facto synod. It's its own thing. And, uh, and so the question I have is, how do uh, member churches uh, have uh, any voice in selecting the leadership of 5-2? Because this is, this is becoming a competing synod within the Missouri Synod. That's what this really is. And so we've got to be really careful as we listen to this. That's what we're about, fueling a movement of sacramental entrepreneurs who start a variety of spiritual communities that create baptized followers of Jesus. Okay, so super, uh, sacramental entrepreneurs who start a variety of spiritual communities. What's a spiritual community, and where in Scripture are we told about the office of the sacramental entrepreneur to do such a thing? I know of pastors, 
And I, you know, and I know of evangelists who are missionaries and people like that who go and plant churches, but everything is done under the auspices of the pastoral office. Where did the 5-2 network get the authority to start a movement with a new office in the church known as the sacramental entrepreneur? From lost people. We believe the church is called to reach new, and in order to do that, we need to start new. Some of us are ready to start. Others of us need some sharpening. We all need someone to lead the efforts. Those are the sacramental entrepreneurs that we're looking for. So you're looking for sacramental entrepreneurs to start new because you're supposed to reach new. Hmm. Weird. You might say those men and women, they're the engines that make 5-2 go. Okay, did you catch that? Men and women can be sacramental entrepreneurs. And yet he just said that sacramental entrepreneurs are to start spiritual communities. So if I were to find the sacramental entrepreneur passages in Scripture that, and lay out you know, what are the biblical qualifications for a sacramental entrepreneur, that could be either a man or a woman? Well, we want to ID these people. We want to equip them and launch them ASAP. They're the ones we want to invest in. So you want to equip and launch sacramental entrepreneurs. Again, I, I have to like ask the obvious question. I understand how pastors are called, and I understand how normatively pastors are equipped uh, you know, to take on the responsibility of the pastoral office vis-a-vis. Normatively, they go to seminary, right? Um, so a pastor is somebody who studied and showed himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handles the word of truth. And I understand that the Missouri Synod, um, that you know, those who are seeking the pastoral office, they want to make sure that they've got the right education and the right equipping before they send them out into the parish in order to properly uh, administer the words and fulfill the duties of, uh, of their office. But here, the 5-2 network is equipping and sending out sacramental entrepreneurs. And I, I just have to ask the question, by what authority are they doing this? And you're saying that these sacramental entrepreneurs are just to start spiritual communities. I would assume that a spiritual community would be a church, Um so why are you circumventing the Missouri Synod system for equipping pastors and get, and making sure that they're qualified before they receive a call? What's the supernatural on supernatural sacramental entrepreneur thing? We believe they're in one of two places, either already in your congregation, hiding out in your pews or in your groups, or they're in your community waiting to be befriended by the church, which is you. In both instances, they're probably waiting for someone to say, hey, would you start something? So Start something. Everything 5-2 does has the sacramental entrepreneur in mind, from our website to our locals to our national conference. Yeah, again, everything you do has the sacramental entrepreneur in mind, but where in Scripture am I told to be looking for these things and equipping them and sending them out? The SE is our client. Seriously. So the sacramental entrepreneur, a, non, a biblically non-existent entity, is your client? Which is why we've developed a process, the fuel, that equips the SE and moves the movement forward. So you've created your own process for identifying and equipping and sending out sacramental entrepreneurs, but 
these are people that are not going to seminary in order to become pastors. In a bone to my Lutheran friends, here are the six chief parts of 5-2's fuel. Part number one, Jesus. It all starts and ends with him. Well, I'm I'm glad it does, but if it really did, then wouldn't sacramental entrepreneurs be found in the words of Jesus and found in Scripture? He's the center of the universe, the reason we exist, Alpha, Omega, Savior, and Lord. Yeah, and as the Lord of the church, you you do not, you know, Christ has given us pastors and teachers. He hasn't given us sacramental entrepreneurs. His presence is real, not just in the sacraments, but also in me, which makes me his sacrament for the world. Uh, what? You're not a sacrament. What are you talking about? This is not biblical theology. I, you ain't a sacrament. Part number two identity, who you are in Jesus. This part helps you know yourself the way Jesus knows you, Psalm 139 stuff, which will lead to you following Jesus more and helping others do the same. Part number three, community. You and I best experience Jesus. Yeah, community. Uh, Drucker sounds like he's uh, burbling under the hood of this movement. Jesus in community. So we need community to grow, and as sacramental entrepreneurs, need to know how to grow community. This chief part provides relationships that lead to courage and camaraderie that leads to how. Part number four, the... What kind of nonsensical slogans are these? Sacramental entrepreneur, the key to it all. This part of the fuel equips the SC to start something sacramental for lost people. It provides leaders... So... Uh, a sacramental entrepreneur is equipped to start something spiritual for lost people. Um, but you're not, you're not installing them and calling them into the pastoral office? Really? For new starts and starts for new people. Part number five, multiplication. In this part of the fuel, we will start to see the culture of congregations and communities change. Great momentum will start to take place as SEs multiply disciples who multiply disciples. So you have SEs that are multiplying disciples, not pastors. Where did you get the authority to come up with a new office in the church? And part number six, movements. Now change starts to take place, not just in congregations, but in denominations, not just in communities, but in countries. This provides renewal and reformation for the global church. Yeah, Seven Mountains kind of stuff. Weird. Now I'm going to play a portion of of another video so that you can kind of get a little bit more of a flavor of what's going on here. And this is, (laughs) to say it's problematic is, um, well, that's, that's putting it politely. But um, what we're dealing with here is a competing ecclesiastical model to the one that is revealed in Scripture. And again, my question is, by what authority does anybody have to change, to change the ecclesiastical model revealed in Scripture and superimpose their own? So we don't have pastors anymore um, you know, that are planting churches. We have super sacramental uh, entrepreneurs that are basically doing this job, and they're the ones going out and doing the discipling. And the, whew, boy, this is a problem. Boy, this is a problem. Here's a little bit more, though, from another video. Every now and then, like almost every week, someone asks me, what's 5-2 about? Why does it exist? Well, we exist because the mainline sacramental church in the U.S. is dying. 
Uh, so you exist because the mainline sacramental church is dying. I would beg to differ with you. Uh, many of the confessional churches that I'm are, uh, that I'm aware of, they're doing very well. You know, for instance, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, they're like bursting at the seams. And if you really want to take a look at the churches that are dying in so-called sacramental churches, well, the ELCA is dying. Why is the ELCA dying? (laughs) Because they've embraced liberalism and have uh, tried to bless same-sex marriage in the name of being relevant and following the spirit of the age. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why churches you know, grow and don't grow. But the reality is this, is that churches don't grow because of our methods. They grow because as Paul says, or yeah, as Paul says, one plants, another waters, and it's God who gives the increase. The job of a pastor is to preach the word in season and out of season. And it's not the power of methods that is the power that brings people to salvation. It's the power of God, the Holy Spirit, through the preached word that brings people to salvation. So, you know, I agree that you know, yeah, there's probably portions of uh, of sacramental churches, mainline churches, that are experiencing you know attendance decline. Truly, that's the case. But how is how then is the solution to this to chuck the uh, the pastoral office and create your own ecclesiastical structure and your own way of sending out people that in a different office than the pastoral office? Stats are atrocious, and we want to do something about it. That something is to start new. We believe that in order to reach new, the church needs to start new. Why? Why can't the church do what is biblical, which isn't new at all? Now, I'm not talking just new church plants, although that's part of it. I'm talking the whole spectrum, new groups, new businesses, new relationships, new community developments, new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, and yes, new churches New stuff to reach new people for Jesus. You have to get out and do some new. No, you don't. you got to faithfully proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates them. Biblically speaking, the church needs to regain its apostolic focus. So we're... Yeah, but how can you say that by chucking the apostolic ecclesiology it revealed in Scripture? looking for the apostolic folk who want to start sacramental communities of all sizes and shapes, generations, and geographies. We call those folks sacramental entrepreneurs. These are men and women who... Yeah, that's right. You call them that. God's Word doesn't because this sacramental entrepreneur thing doesn't exist in Scripture. Love sacramental theology, and they love Jesus' lost people, and they like to start new. And I want to know if that's you. You might want to know if that's you. So here are seven characteristics of sacramental entrepreneurs. Yeah, none of them found in Scripture because the sacramental entrepreneur is not an office found in Scripture. If you have three or more of these marks, you're in the club and you didn't know it. You can thank me later. Mark 1, I am burdened for Jesus' lost people. Yeah, that's truly me. Yeah, I, I definitely am. Very simply, I love them. I want to reach them. I think the church should reach them. And frankly, I enjoy being with them, oftentimes more so than being with followers of Jesus. They're refreshing. I want them in heaven. Mark 2, I'm tired of the status quo. I'm tired of the status so this is So the 5-2 network is basically built off of a rebellion against the biblical status, status quo. This is a rebellion against the biblical ecclesiology, right? I'm frustrated by problems that go unresolved and practices that need reforming. Today is the day to start moving the ball down the field. Mark 3, I see beyond today. 
I can see what the future would be like if we move beyond today's changeable reality. Yeah, I can see what the future is going to be like if you adopt this ecclesiology. It's real simple. Just look at Mars Hill in Seattle. Just look at Saddleback in in Southern California. Look at Willow Creek. You want to know what the future looks like? You adopt this ecclesiology, you're going to end up with their theology. And while that future might move through pain, it is full of hope. Mark 4. I multiply growth. No, I don't. God does. One plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. More people, more groups, more impact, more cities, more whatever. Somehow, when God has more whatever, we just got to do something. As we touch things, they increase, especially disciples. Mark 5. I see obstacles as opportunities. Change is a resource. Rules are made to be rewritten. Not God's rules, but man's rules. Yeah, but you've rewritten God's rules by coming up with your own ecclesiology in your own office that's different than the pastoral office. Of which there are an abundance. Mark 6, I attract like-minded people. Like-minded people who are in rebellion against uh, the biblical ecclesiology, right. People tend to say yes to my invitations to follow. And we tend to have a good amount of unanimity in the journey. And last of all, Mark 7. I start things without anyone telling me I should. Clubs, ministries, groups, businesses, whatever, it just seems natural. Everywhere I go, I'm the guy or gal that launches new initiatives. And if this is really strong in you, years later, those initiatives are still happening. You might have noted that none of those seven marks deal with what we mean by sacramental. Yeah, none of them actually deal with any of the qualifications for a pastor found in the Bible. If that's still a question for you, be sure and check out our video on sacramental faith. So how many of the marks do you have? Three or more? If so, you're the kind of person that we want to pour into. And the next videos in the series will... So you're setting up your own magisterium. You're setting up your own ecclesiological uh, uh, structure. And you're coming up with your own way of equipping them and sending them out that's contrary and different to the biblical office of pastor. And contrary and competing with the way the Missouri Synod actually sends out and equips pastors. Wow, this is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And again, I keep asking the question, by what authority does the 5-2 network have the, uh, you know, the chutzpah? To go, to go ahead and just completely trash the biblical ecclesiastical model and come up with their own model, their own office, their own qualifications uh, in order to uh, set up their own things, all in the name of disciple-making, right? Yeah, no, uh, the thing is, is that, like I said, the Missouri Synod is always late to the party, and when they show up, it's just when uh, the uh, evangelical world has realized the dead end that they're on and are starting to figure out that they need to go a different direction. But of course, Missouri Synod <clears throat> being what the Missouri Synod is, they think, oh, this is the latest and greatest thing. But this isn't. All this is, is the Willow Creek model or the uh, purpose-driven model uh, you know, rehashed in sacramental words. But it's got this, it has the same fatal flaw. It's, a, it's not a biblical ecclesiastical model all done in the name of, well, we've got to save our churches because we're in decline. We've got to do something. And so the thing to do is to scrap what God's Word tells us to do. This is not a formula for growing the church. This is a formula for creating large buildings with lots of crowds coming who eventually stop hearing 
the words of Jesus and are hearing, well, all of these self-help pep talks because what happens is is that this this creates these huge megalithic uh, churches with these huge budgets, multi-million dollar budgets for set dressing and pastors and and you know and they need an army of volunteers and stuff like that. In order to keep the doors open, they have to continue to water down and water down and water down the message in order to appeal to as broad a crowd as possible. And then you end up with what we already are covering here at Fighting for the Faith and have been. Uh, since we started broadcasting in 2007. This is a formula for disaster because it is in rebellion against the biblical ecclesiastical model. And, uh, yeah, we've seen where this ends up, and it doesn't end up in the right place. It ends up with a shipwrecked church that doesn't preach Christ and Him crucified, even if, at the outset, everybody's gung-ho about preaching the gospel. Yeah. Very, very dangerous. And so we've demonstrated Bill Wolsey, he can preach the gospel. He understands law and gospel, sin and grace. The problem is, is that he's rebelling against what the Bible has set up. And in a sense, he's actually rebelling against the very structure set up uh, ecclesiastically to train, equip, and send uh, men into the ministry. He's got his own way of doing it, and he's starting a movement. Well, this movement is contrary to the biblical model, and, uh, and in, well, it's treasonous, if you ask me, uh, regarding how things are to be operating within the Missouri Senate. But again, that's just my opinion. All right, last thing we're going to do for the first hour, although we're well into the second hour already, I wanted to uh, bring you up to speed. Down in Australia and New Zealand, it is a big story right now that Brian Houston has been made to appear before a royal commission into uh, responses to child sexual abuse within the Pentecostal movements. And um, so what we're going to be listening to is a kind of a, a roundup of several different news stories. I'm going to point out a couple of things along the way. Now, this is important. Uh, number one, th- it is not a new story that uh, Frank Houston, who is Brian Houston's father, um, was a pedophile, not only with one, but I, they're saying between six and seven victims. I'm hearing kind of conflicting reports, whether it's six or seven. One of them you're going to hear from in this in one of these news stories. So that's not that's not the the story. Okay, this is not some secret that you know all of a sudden somebody blew the lid off it. That's not it at all. Okay, instead this has to do with the response of Hillsong Church, uh, which technically didn't even exist at the time that this came forward. Um, Hillsong Church is, is, is basically a merging of Brian Houston's church and Frank Houston's church into one thing. And, uh, and this is after uh, Frank Houston was disciplined when it came to light you know, what his sin was. So this has to do with responses. That's what we're going to focus on. And some of these responses are telling. Now, some of the responses that you're going to hear about are allegations at this point. They're not, they have not been confirmed as fact. And at least one particular thing that's put forward as an allegation, Brian Houston is challenging it saying that, you know, I think he said yesterday that he doesn't agree with the, the, the victim's interpretation of what he said. I think that's, you know, what he put pretty much said on there, but we're going to focus, or I want you to be up to speed on this and aware of the story because it is a big story and there are some things in here that kind of tell us a little bit about how celebrity pastors are dealt with. And Frank Houston back in his day was that. He was a celebrity pastor in the Assemblies of God movement. So 
Here's Nine News as they discuss this story. Here we go. Good evening. The founder of the Hillsong Church has faced damning accusations at the Royal Commission into sex abuse after his late father allegedly molested at least six children. The inquiry heard that Brian Houston accused one of the alleged victims of tempting his father into assaulting him. Now that's an allegation. The, the, one of the victims claims that, um, that Brian Houston accused him of tempting his father. That's uh, if that's true, that's, wow, really bad. And there's always With fire and brimstone, he preached the word of God and condemned the evil of sin. But the fact of the matter is that the devil does go around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But all along, preacher Frank Houston lived a shocking lie. I remember that when he was touching me inappropriately, I would be petrified and would lay very still. The victim, identified only as AHA, was then age seven. It was 1970, and the Royal Commission learned today he was not the only one. Frank Houston had touched the genitals of six boys about 30 years ago. At least 50 New Zealand pastors were aware of the allegations against Frank Houston. What a God I am this But pastor... Did, did you hear that? 50 pastors were aware... Of this, Houston was considered royalty and continued his preaching. My faith, my strength. Witnessing my his son Brian create Hillsong, a multi-million-dollar Pentecostal success story. The victim, AHA, told the inquiry that he was urged by his mother not to say anything because it would upset the church and send people to hell. But he did eventually break his silence. It was around the year 2000 and a panicked Frank Houston was desperate for forgiveness. The inquiry was told of a meeting at McDonald's in Thornlea when Houston asked his victim to sign an old serviette and a deal for $10,000. I want your forgiveness for this. I don't want to die and have to face God with this on my head. If you put your signature there, I'll give you the 10000 Pastor Frank, just do it and say you forgive me and that'll be it. Okay, that's a problem. You want to pay your victim $10,000 in exchange for his silence? Wow. In a statement today, Brian Houston said his father's actions were repulsive. But back at the time, he was allegedly defending him and blaming the victim for what went on. Now, again, these are allegations. It hasn't been substantiated. At this point, it's... The victim's word against Brian Houston. So you, you, as Christians, we have to keep that in mind. You know it's your fault all of this happened. You tempted my father. Frank Houston died in 2004. Brian Houston is due to give evidence tomorrow. Is necessary. Damien Ryan, 9 News. All right, so that's story number one. Now, this is kind of an important story that we're going to play next. And that is, is that... Okay, so we're, 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 we're looking at how, how the sin is being addressed. And if the victim is to be believed, he was offered money for his silence, and Brian Houston blamed the victim for tempting his father, even though he was seven years old at the time. Now, this next story deals with the fact that Frank Houston still preached after it became known what happened. Let's listen to this story. 
The Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse has heard evidence that accused paedophile Frank Houston continued to preach despite being suspended. His continued to preach despite being suspended? How is that possible? Son and leader of the Hillsong Church, Brian Houston, was due in the witness box today, but he will now appear tomorrow. Sky News Sydney reporter Lauren Dixon has more. He's still yet to give evidence, but Brian Houston has been quick to put distance between himself and his father. It was a preach of a different kind from the spiritual leader of the Hillsong Church. My, my heart goes out to every victim of my father. It breaks my heart. Mr Houston was due to give evidence today, but instead listened to mounting allegations of child sexual abuse at the hands of his father. Allegations he's been quick to condemn. That's what they are, horrible allegations, but they're true allegations mainly. He also sought to clear his own name. The Commission heard evidence yesterday that Mr Houston accused a victim of being to blame for abuse. You know, I would strongly refute simply what I've already refuted, and that is that uh, I suggested that a child would somehow be uh, responsible for, um, you know, an adult's actions, a paedophile's actions. On the stand today, Pastor Barbara Taylor recounted exchanges with Brian Houston about his father's actions. She told the inquiry when she confronted Mr Houston, he said his father had confessed to a one-off incident, which involved a little boy who walked through a room without his clothes on. But the Royal Commission has heard allegations the victim, known as Witness AHA, was one of at least seven boys sexually assaulted by Frank Houston for years. Pastor Taylor says she believes Frank Houston had trivialised the incident to Brian. Lauren Dixon, Sky News, Sydney. Yeah, and that pastor woman also claimed that, uh, well, that he kept Frank Houston actually preached and prophesied even after you know, the sin came to light. So here's another story. This one uh, published in, you know, today uh, it, by Sky News in Australia, po- pointing out the fact that rules were not followed regarding Frank Houston. And I think, again, this is kind of an important story. So we're, we're trying to grab the data that's, you know, coming out of Australia in order to put, you know, a little bit of a, of a picture together as to what happened. But here we go. The spiritual leader of the Hillsong Church has admitted to a child abuse inquiry he had no doubt his father's actions were criminal. Brian Houston has been giving evidence at the Royal Commission on allegations his father, Frank Houston, who died in 2004, abused at least seven boys in the 1960s and 70s. He's been questioned about why he did not go to the police when he first found out about the sex abuse allegations. All of the information I was being given by uh, different people was that the man's 35, 36 years of age and if he decides to go to the police, he he can. Or if anyone else decides to go to the police, then he can. If we were talking about someone, if this complaint was about someone who was under 18 then and there, I am absolutely certain we would have reported to the police. We would have made sure that's where it went. Brian Houston has also been accused by one of the victims of telling them they were to blame for the abuse. He denies the allegation and spoke outside the commission a short time ago. I, I thought that I was doing my role as Superintendent Assemblies of God, leader of the church, and uh, one thing I, you know, I am very aware of is that I was only a 14-year-old boy when these things happened. Hillsong Church and its predecessors, Sydney CLC and Hill CLC, didn't exist at all. 
And so I feel a great sadness. I feel a great maybe moral responsibility. But in terms of feeling like, um, you know, that I I somehow personally responsible or even that our church is ultimately responsible, I I don't feel. The the morality of it's a different issue than the legal issue. Okay, so the morality is a different issue than the legal issue. And then to round out the kind of the uh, the last of the ones we're going to listen to, another story from Sky News, you know, taking a look at the issue, and then we'll kind of sum this all up and, and talk about, you know, how is sin to be dealt with, especially when it, this type of sin when we're dealing with a pastor. But let's uh, first and foremost uh, listen to this last story. Here we go. The founder of the Hillsong Church will face a second day of questioning at the Royal Commission tomorrow. Brian Houston gave evidence today about how his church responded to allegations against his father. Sky News Sydney reporter Lauren Dixon has our story. It was a gut feeling that had Brian Houston convinced that his father was guilty of child sex abuse. And in the witness box today, he was quick to condemn him as a serial pedophile. No, I never saw any of these documents. And to be honest, the way I look at it all is Frank was dodging and weaving and uh, was a desperate man treading water. The Royal Commission has heard evidence Frank Houston, who died in 2004, abused at least seven boys in the 1960s and 1970s. Today, Brian Houston, the spiritual leader of the Hillsong movement, recounted the day his father, a man he looked up to, confessed to a one-off incident. I was probably compassionate towards my father, but in terms of trying to defend anything he had done, that wasn't in my thought, it wasn't on my radar. It was indefensible what he did, and I don't feel like I've ever moved from understanding the moment he told me that this is a serious criminal matter. And while Brian Houston admitted he knew his father's actions were criminal, he did not go to the police. Instead, Mr Houston suspended his father from preaching for a year, a move that... That's right. Suspended him from preaching for how long? One year. Wow. Wow. Violated church rules, which would have had the self-confessed pedophile sacked. But Mr Houston denied there was any conflict of interest, saying he's confident in his own actions. Uh, I saw my role as um, taking responsibility, taking leadership, making sure that I didn't treat my father different than anyone else. But earlier, the former Assemblies of God National Secretary conceded the church had failed the victim known as AHA serious moral failure against Frank Houston. That's right, isn't it? During his time before the commission, Brian Houston sought to distance himself and his church from the dark actions of his father. He'll be back again tomorrow for round two. All right, so you get the idea. Now, you've got to sort this all out. Number one, Brian Houston is not guilty of this. The question is in, in how it was handled when the sin came to light. You see, first and foremost, the way sin is dealt with is it's confessed and it's forgiven. First and foremost, you know, if we, you know, as First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So repentance, forgiveness of sins go together. What I find fascinating is is that if the story regarding the McDonald's incident where the man was offered $10,000 to basically be quiet, um, 
because Frank Houston was worried that he didn't want to have to face God on this and that somehow he needed this person's forgiveness in order to be forgiven, we've got a problem. Um, That tells me that there's not a proper understanding of repentance and forgiveness of sins, confession and absolution, if you would, uh, you know, at Hillsong under Frank Houston. Now, the uh, the claim, the allegation that Brian Houston blamed the victim. Now, let's just say that's true. You know, let's put it from allegation to okay. We'll go ahead and admit. Okay, maybe that is uh, that is true. But regardless of whether or not it's true, let's say if it was true, that could be something said during the grieving process. And and here's what I mean: when when this type of thing is found out about a family member. It's like having a death in the family. And the, there's certain steps that go along with the grieving process. There's a step that's like denial. There's a step that has to do with anger. And then there's a negotiating step and there's other steps. So it's you, you, to put the best construction on it, even if Brian Houston did say that at that time, um, it, it, it may be indicative of the fact that he's reeling, still reeling with what's going on and doesn't want to come to grips with this is what his father has done. And so, you know, there's, 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 you know, from the time he finds out to the time where, you know, he is now, he absolutely agrees, you know, that what his father did was sinful, was criminal and, and all of that, um, that there's a process to get to that point. And then you've got the other part of it, and that's the pressure regarding the, the, the church empire that's being built and what's at stake, right? And so you do have these conflicting interests going on in this case. But the idea that Frank Houston, uh, according to one uh, witness, was preaching very shortly after this came to light that there was a letter sent to over 50 pastors basically telling them don't say anything um and that the the official um the official discipline was that Frank Houston couldn't preach for a year <sighs> that's where it gets to the point where you sit there and go hmm something is terribly wrong here and already you can see at work the you know the the constructing of the machinery of the uh, evangelical industrial complex you know i and i in this makes it so that you just wonder i mean you know let's let's change the subject here for a second let's say that this isn't frank houston that's done this let's say this is mark driscoll would the evangelical industrial complex sack Mark Driscoll or basically have him be disciplined and not preach for a year. You see, there's some sins that truly somebody could be restored to ministry for and others, man, yeah, that knock you out of the game completely. You just, it's, wow. Um, So you get the complexities of what's going on here. And so the idea in this segment is is that part of discernment is learning how to sift through data and, you know, and put the best construction where it can be put and rightly see where the problems are and then scrutinizing those problems in light of what Scripture says. So, yeah, you get what I'm saying. And as you can see, it's really not as easy as it looks in this particular case. Big story, fascinating news. There's you know, some, there's some uh, within the mainstream media down in Australia 
who are opining that this should uh, result in uh, Brian Houston's uh, being let go or stepping down from uh, the leadership of Hillsong. I don't know. I don't know if that's appropriate, but uh, I'd love to know what you think. In fact, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review from Daystar in Atlanta about learning how to dream with God. Yeah, I have no idea what that means. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two, get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. It's a little bit weird. I mean, have you ever had a pastor say, you need to learn how to dream with God? <laughs> just can't make stuff up anymore. I mean, it's just so bizarre out there. But let's do this right. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Our, we are Equal Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon comes to us via Daystar Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Chris Tigreen presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled Dreaming with God. 
where true desires are born. <laughs> See, I'm already struggling. I'm, I'm just struggling because I can't think of a single passage where I'm taught in Scripture to dream with God. So we've got a problem here. I mean, Houston, it's uh, the problem already exists in the title of the sermon. So, in fact, I don't even think I should try to set this up anymore. Let me back off the music. And uh, without any further ado, here is Chris Tigreen and his sermon entitled Dreaming with God. Here we go. We've been talking about having God's thoughts, getting our minds in sync with what God thinks. Okay, not a bad idea. The way we go about that is by reading his word. You want to get your mind in line with God's thoughts? Many of God's thoughts that we're to be thinking are right there in the written word of God. And following that desire not to let anything in our minds that isn't from him because you know how messed up we can get with all kinds of thoughts and all those trails that our minds go go down and all these things that come in and and you you know you follow your trail of thoughts and all of a sudden you realize wait a minute this feels real but it's probably not truth <laughs> what it feels real but it's probably not truth huh and what we want to do is get out of, of that place where we're just letting our minds go wherever they go. And we're asking God, Lord, we want your thoughts. We want you to direct our thoughts. You promise that we can have the mind of Christ. You promise that if we ask for wisdom, we can have wisdom. So all of these things, um, we, we really, in all of these areas, we really want to think like him. And tonight I want to talk a little bit about dreaming with God. Your desires lining up with God's desires. Him Dreaming with God. Yeah, told you this was going to be weird. Him putting his dreams, his desires inside of you so that what you will, what you're desiring is in line with what his plan for you is. I want you to imagine for a minute... I want you to put yourself in the place of God. Now, I know this is a little bit of a stretch. I just want to imagine that you're in his place, that you're seeing things from his perspective, okay? Imagine if you're God and you have spent centuries, millennia, cultivating people to know you and to love you. And you've even gotten to the point of clothing yourself. In so I'm just imagining this, right? in flesh and inhabiting this world, dying on behalf of your people in order to establish an unbroken relationship with them. And this so I'm supposed to discover the answer to this question by imagining myself as God. <laughs> Man. Yeah, not only that, you came and you put your spirit inside of the people that you wanted to be with. Yeah. So that they could be empowered by you they could receive everything that you are. So you've done everything that's necessary to bring them into close, intimate union with you. And many have accepted that invitation. Okay? Imagine from his perspective. Imagining from God's perspective. Tough to do because I ain't even close to God. What he did in order to create relationship with us. Now... Is it your desire? 
is it my desire as God that I'm imagining myself to be? If that's what you've done in order to create relationship with your people, is it your desire for them to be motivated by external forces? So I can somehow figure out God's motives if I just imagine myself as God. This is not how you do Christian theology. Christian theology is done with an open Bible exegeting a clear passage, not by imagining myself to be God, and then from there I can figure out the right answer to what God's motivations are. You see, this is not how we learn about how to think the thoughts of God, by imagining ourselves to be God. By outward commands, by guilt and shame, how, how do you want to get them in sync with your plan? How do you want to get, line them up with your heart? You want to just tell them what to do and they, like a servant, say, yes, sir, I'll do that. And, and then they, they go about it, but they re- never really connect with you in the process. Do you want them to feel guilty about how bad they are and so they try to be good and that's how they conform to your purposes? Or is maybe there a better way to direct your people? I mean, pretty. Again, this is no way to figure out how God operates by imagining myself to be God. Clearly, you think about this as a parent, too. Do you want kids who. I know the immediate answer to this is going to be yes, but I want you to think before you answer, okay? Do you want your kids just to say yes and do everything that you say? Wait a second. Because that sounds pretty good, right? Or is it better that they develop your heart and know what you desire and that they come in? Oh, I I see what you're doing here. You're trying to get people to go along with your thoughts. So you say, but isn't it better if? See, because we're all just imagining right now. This is called a game of pretend. Into, Into conformity with your desires, into union with your desires. So what they do naturally is actually what you would have told them in the first place. That's a little bit better, right? That's how God prefers to direct us. Now, sometimes there are... So how do you know that that's how God prefers to direct us? Because you played the pretend game where you pretended you were God and you can then figure out his motivations? Or did you know that this is how God prefers to operate because there's a clear passage that says he prefers to operate this way? Yet I can't think of a single passage that says what you just said. Times when he just tells us what to do and we go, okay, Lord, I didn't see that coming, but yes, I'll I'll do what you said. Um... But his desire is to direct us not from the outside, but to direct us from within. And the way which biblical text says that God prefers to direct us from within, I'm not familiar with that text. The way that he does that is by imparting his desires and his will in us. There's a verse. In- which passage says that he imparts his will into us? Philippians, Philippians 2.13, that says it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah, that's out of context. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you to will and to do. See, um, yeah, that's not saying the same thing that you just said. This is why Jesus is able to say to his disciples, assuming that they have a relationship with him, that that he's the vine and they're the branches, and there's this intimate union between the two. This is why he's able to say to them, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, that's not just a blanket promise for any desire that comes up for anybody out there. It's people in union with him. But if you're in fellowship with him, there's, there's this 
there's this impartation of what he wants to do. Yeah, Philippians 2.13 does not say that there's an impartation. You're sticking that in the text. Through his spirit inside the heart of those who have come to him and are united to him in that way. So how do we get there? Um, yeah, so how do we get the impartation? Do we imagine ourselves to be God again? Is that how we do, by playing pretend? I mean, it, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Because if you're like me, there's, there's this frustration with many times in life, there's something you desire, but it turns out that's, that wasn't God's plan for you, and there's this disconnect, and it's like, oh, Lord, one day I would like what's in here to line up with what you're planning to do anyway. And really, that's his promise. That what's in here? Where is that his promise? Where is that in Scripture that that is his promise? Here, that if, that if we delight in him, that he'll give us the desires of our hearts, that he'll put his desires in us, and that he'll fulfill those di- desires, and there will, that we'll be in sync with him enough that, that our, our, our... Because of an impartation. Our wanting mechanism lines up with his giving desire. His, uh, so our wanting mechanism will then get in sync with his giving desire, right. Yeah, I'm not familiar with these texts. Is giving process, okay? That's what we want, and so we're going to talk about that just a little bit tonight. Um, but but I want you to think right now, I mean, I, I know that's our desire, and I know that's what we're going after, but I want you to think, really, what motivates you to do the things that you do? What drives you to make the choices that you make? choose the career that you've chosen, to to earn money the way that you choose to earn money, or to to invest your time in the hobbies and the relationships and and all the things that you invest your time in. What what motivates you to do what you do? Um, A lot of people, and this has been my story at times, and I'm pretty sure it's the story of most people at some time or another, I'm not saying right now, in every situation, but, but there are times when you make choices because you feel like you need to prove yourself, right? There's some insecurity, there's some wound from the past where, where um, you make choices in order to compensate for some weakness, some insecurity, some pain that's still inside of you. It's like, if I can do this, then I'll prove to everybody way back then that I'm not who they thought I was. I'm really who I think I am. That's, that's motive a lot of times for a lot of us. A lot of times our motive is to, to keep seeking enough pleasure that we don't have to deal with the pain. That's a, enough pleasure will cover up the pain at least for a few minutes, and then we go seek something else, and then we seek something else, and then we seek something else. I have no idea what he's talking about. There's a, there's a lot of mixed motives inside of us. A lot of times we choose um, the path that we've taken because it fits an image that we want to have for ourselves. And so we, we, we try to create our life in that image. It may be God's image for us or it may not be. We have all kinds of mixed motives working inside of us. And the, and the reason I say that is because if we're going to get to that place where we're desiring what God desires, if we're receiving the desires that he's planted within us, if we're dreaming with him. Again, which text tells me to dream with him? Then we've got to understand 
our history of dreaming from the wrong place or from the wrong identity. Yeah. So have you been dreaming from the wrong place and the wrong identity? I mean, that's just the formula for never being able to dream with God. And, you know, the Bible in Second Hesitations, chapter 96, verse 4, talks about the importance of dreaming with God, you know? Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense, but... I think there's two things to this. I mean, the, the idea of, of dreaming with God is something that really gets me excited. It gets most of, ex- most of us excited. The idea of working on some of our inner issues really kind of makes me go, oh, really? Do I have to? I mean, dreaming with God sounds exciting. Working on issues sounds hard. I go with exciting almost all the time. Yeah, dreaming with God sounds like a fable and a myth and not even a biblical doctrine. You you know, working on problems sounds like something that everybody does normally. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's kind of what we gravitate toward, right? So I, I, I want this next part not to sound like... I don't want it to sound like the unexciting part. Because really these things are connected, okay? I I, I really want to make two points, and I want to make them pretty quickly. One is you have to know who you are. Otherwise, you're going to be dreaming and desiring out of a false identity. Mm -hmm. Well, um, according to my driver's license, I'm Chris Roseboro. I guess that's who I am. Okay. Know who you are. We've talked about that. We've prayed about that a lot in the last few months. Those prayers from Ephesians that we went through, the the asking God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Um, Knowing who you are. <laughs> Clearly, people are on the quest to figure out who they is. I mean, you know, if you're not sure, you know, pull up your birth certificate, um, you know, um, a driver's license help, maybe a passport and you know, if you've forgotten who you are, you know, you can see your name there. And, you know, if you want to know a little bit about yourself and maybe you've forgotten, maybe you can ask a friend, can you tell me what I'm like and what I'm all about? Maybe they can help you if you've forgotten who you is, you know? Knowing, asking him to fill us so that we would know the height and depth and length and breadth of his love. All of these things are about knowing who we are. Because here's the thing. All of your behavior, whether you realize this or not, all of your behavior comes out of your self-perception. Mm-hmm. And which biblical text says that my behavior comes out of my self-perception? I could point you to passages that talk about how sin starts in the heart. I could talk about passages that talk about how our sinful flesh desires to do evil things. But I can't think of any passages that talk about what you just said. You know what I'm saying? It really does. If you see yourself as... If you see yourself as a sinner, guess what? You are going to fulfill that identity. But Scripture says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So Scripture commands us to confess that we're sinners by nature, that we sin against God in thought, word, deed, by what we do, by what we don't do, you know, stuff like that. If you, see, if you see yourself as somebody who struggles with sin and is never able to get over it, but Lord, I hope one day, but I'm really just a sinner, and I, you're going to live that out. That- 
Yeah, the Bible says the exact opposite of what you're saying. Don't you think that's problematic? That's your focus. That's what you're going to live. If you see yourself as a failure, you're going to live out the life of a failure. So you have to see yourself as somebody who's beloved by God, somebody who's just completely bathed in his love, somebody who's a new creation in Christ, somebody who's a royal priest. So say all these wonderful affirming things about myself, but don't ever confess that I'm a sinner. (sighs) Again, the Bible says the exact opposite of what this guy is saying. Of those things that he says about us, that we've been conformed to his image, that we're a new creation in him, if you start to see yourself that way and, and, and let go of all those false identities that drive your dreams and desires in the first place, then you set yourself up to be able to receive his dreams and his desires for your life. Now, notice what's missing here. Um, what's missing is an open Bible. What's missing is a biblical text. What's missing is a passage that he's exegeting. Where is he getting this theology? He's matrixing it from all of these different passages taken out of context, but nothing in context. He would do far better if he would stop theologizing, which is what he's doing. He's theologizing, though, from his own ego. If he would stop theologizing, open up the Bible, pick a book, and start exegeting reading out what's there. Then people would really truly know the mind of God, the thoughts of God, and the doctrines that God has revealed in Scripture. Things about us, things about Jesus, and all that kind of thing, right? But he's not doing that. He's just theologizing out of his own ego, and the things he's saying actually are directly contradicted by clear passages in Scripture. This is the sign that you are in a church where you're not being fed. This is what it looks like for you to be deceived or you know for somebody to be deceiving others and he's speaking so authoritatively this is what god wants this is his desire but he's not showing that these are god's desires or thoughts from any clear text in context this is the sign that you're dealing with a wolf a false teacher and somebody who's leading you astray if you are attending a church like this where the pastor does this you need to leave you gotta go um, you know, you might want to try to tell the pastor to repent and to actually preach the word, but generally that goes poorly. But you might want to try it, and, and of course, you'll probably be thrown out as soon as you do that, you know? When, when, you, when your identity comes from a negative place, your experiences will end up being negative. If you see yourself as a saint, this is what God calls you, even to the Corinthians who are really kind of a messed up church. And it's not an either or. Scripture tells us to embrace that we are saints. Yes, we are. We are the Hagi or the holy ones, those who are declared to be righteous by faith because of what Christ has done. And at the same time, Scripture also has us confess that we are sinners. It's not an either or. It's both. He started off by calling them saints, holy and beloved, set apart by God. If that's how you see yourself, that's the role you're going to play. That's what you'll live out. So we have to know who we are. 
Otherwise, our dreams and our desires come from the wrong roots. We have to know who we are. Otherwise, our dreams and desires. I had no idea. God was really, really clearly interested and worried about us fulfilling dreams and desires, you know? I was thinking about this earlier today, and I'm not sure why it came to mind, but it was just, it's this idea of, of loving the dreams and desires of God and going after our destiny and going after our calling. Without, going after our destiny. Boy, am I important. Without having done some key things inside first. And it reminded me of when I would go to the gym, and usually about five, six weeks before summer starts, there would be a bunch of people who show up because they're getting ready for the beach, right? And this is especially guys, sometimes women, but especially the guys would come in and they'd really work on the muscles that show, right? Because who wants to spend all that time working on stuff that's not going to show up? So they go for the arms and the legs and chest and the shoulders and they do all this kind of stuff and they wouldn't work on their core. And what happens when you do that is you have a really weak midsection and you get really buff and worked up in all this other stuff and you get kind of imbalanced and you end up with a lot of muscle strains and a lot of pulls. Why? Because your inner strength is not able to carry the weight of what you've been working on outwardly. Yeah, I'm glad you found a metaphor that somehow can somehow logically rationalize this theology that you've concocted. But again, this is not a biblical theology. Now, in in the spirit, it's the same thing. A lot of times we go after all that good stuff that God has promised us. We want the dreams. We want the desires. We want to step into our destiny. And, Lord, when are you going to pull this off? And, Lord, I'm so ready for the things that you promised me. And I'm going after my destiny. I'm going after my calling. And yet, if he gave it to us, the ministry and the fruit on the outside would be too heavy for the lack of strength we have on the inside. And which text says this again? Again, you're spinning this out of your head. Where did you get the authority to teach this theology in Christ's church? This is not what the Bible teaches. We would not be able to carry the weight of our calling. And that's why these two things are related. Does that make sense? It's, it, it's, it's not exciting, in the, I was going to say, to work on your abdominals in the spirit, but that just doesn't sound right. But that's really kind of what it is. It's not exciting to work on the core. Nobody sees that. But let me tell you something, everything you do flows out of that. And and it's not that you, you get that all in place first and then you work on the other stuff, because if you do that, you're going to end up 90-something years old and say, okay, Lord, I'm almost healed up inside. I think I'm almost ready. You'll, you'll never get there. These things kind of work along at the same time. But pay attention to your core. Now, having said that, Begin to dream with him. Ask him, Lord, what are you... So having said all of this nonsense theology that you spun out of your head, not showed is actually biblical, now you want me to dream along with God. Which, again, doesn't make any sense because no biblical text instructs me to do this. 
dreams? What are your desires for me? Give me your heart. Give me that spirit of wisdom and revelation. As you spend time with him in a place of intimacy, he imparts his heart. He- mm-hmm. If you spend time in a place of intimacy, he imparts his heart. I don't know of any text that says this. He imparts the desires that fit your sweet spot. And a lot of times it feels like, well, this is just my desire. This is it's like, I mean, we, we have something inside of us that says, if I want it, God doesn't. And yet, if you've, if you've spent, if they have come to you in that fellowship with him, that's not true. If you want it, it's probably because God did too, and he put it inside of you. Uh-huh. Right, yeah. Again, which text says this? By what authority are you delivering this message? You didn't get the authority from Jesus to share this message because in the Great Commission, Jesus says, baptizing, teaching them all that I have commanded, which is going to be found in the Scriptures. But the Scriptures don't say this. So you're teaching a message that God has not authorized you. Christ has not authorized you to teach. Now, please don't hear me say that every desire that comes out of you is something that God put in there. A lot of it's just you. But a lot of it's not. And I can't tell you... And, and how am I supposed to tell the difference? How much of my, of my life I've spent trying to crucify desires that God actually put in there because I thought they were just me. Uh-huh. So clearly, um, the desires God puts in you, he doesn't put a flag on them. So you say, oh, that's a God desire and that's a me desire. You might mistake the God desires as me desires when in fact they're God desires. Boy, this sounds like a confusing, subjective way to live, don't you think? And I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit just, I don't know that the Holy Spirit gets frustrated, but if he could, he would have in this situation, because it's like, I keep giving you my desires, and you keep taking them to the cross and say, Lord, not my will, but, but yours. And he says, this is my will. I put it inside of you. It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't take every desire that comes to you and say, must be God. But do take every desire that comes up in you and say, Lord, is this you? And spend so much time in fellowship with him. Do so much to position yourself in that intimacy with him that stuff starts to come up within you and you go, I don't know where this came from, but it looks a lot like him. And you'll find that your heart starts to beat in sync with his heart. I will. And his love starts coming up in you in ways that it never has before. And you start, you you get these crazy visions that, oh, I want to do that. And it's like no human would think that. It, It must be God. It could be undigested pizza in your colon. The kingdom of heaven is goodness in every area. Sounds so pious, doesn't it? Which text is he preaching from? And as as we're thinking about and learning how to think the thoughts of God and to have his dreams and have his desires, what it really boils down to is getting the environment of heaven, which is goodness, in here, so you got to get the environment of heaven in here. Is there a, a heavenly environmental transfer tool that I can use? So that the things of the kingdom begin to flourish in here. 
And in order to do that, you have to know who you are and you have to live from that identity. And when you live from that identity and you're in fellowship with him, you can say, Lord, what do you want? What are you dreaming of for me? What are you dreaming of? I don't recall any of the early Christian church fathers or martyrs or anything like that praying such a weird prayer. So self-centered, too. In me. And there really is no formula for this, but there is a key. And it's coming to him and asking. And where does God's word instruct me to ask him about such things? It's abiding in him. It's living in communion with him to the point that your heart and his heart start to beat in the same way. And you don't know where he stops and you begin. And you don't know where you stop and he begins. Yeah, it sounds so mystical and stuff, but it's not biblical. Because all intimate relationships, that's where they end up. Mm. It's true in marriage. It's true in close friendships. You grow closer together and it's like, oh, this is starting to blend here. With God, it's the ultimate blending. Jesus said, I have given them my glory in order that they may be one with each other and with me in the same way. Again, out of context, you need to exegete passages in context. That you and I, Father, are one. Now think about how God and Jesus are one. Okay? That's his prayer for you, that you be one with him in exactly the same way. When that happens, you'll find yourself getting desires. Maybe you and maybe him, and at some point, maybe it just doesn't matter. Because he's imparted his heart to you. And you test it. You ask him. Because you know some things, you're you're still human, some things just come up. But more and more, he begins to to put dreams in there that you can step into and you can step into without worrying that the weight of those dreams are going to crush you. Yeah, well, that's the last thing you would want to have. I mean, can you imagine dying because the weight of a dream crushed you to death? I mean, that would be terrible. Because you know who you are. I want to lead us in a prayer before we shift into prophetic. I want you to stand. You're going to shift into the prophetic? Stand up with me. Yeah, no, you don't get to pray for us. So there you go. Um, not a very long sermon, but you get the point. I mean, the, the question stands, by what authority was he delivering this message? Because nowhere in the Bible is this message that he delivered actually taught as a message that is to be preached and believed in Christ's church because the Bible doesn't say these things. So by what authority was he delivering this message? His own, really. Because he's, he's shifting into the prophetic, he's claiming to be a prophet. Yeah, but that really wasn't biblical doctrine, Christian theology, or what the church has believed, taught, and confessed since its beginning. In other words, that was false doctrine from a false prophet teaching people falsely on his own authority, not on the authority of Christ. Think about it. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.